Hello, Annie Trenders. Welcome to the Girl Taku, hosted by the ladies of Anime Trending. We are back with another fun topic on the table. My name is Gracie, and I am joined by. Hello, I am Isabel, and this is Agnes. So, without further ado, the Girl Taku today will be about anime moms because, well, when the episode is released this last weekend, is Mother's Day, and you know what better way to celebrate the holiday than to cover some of our favorite anime moms or just anime moms that rivet us in regards to what we've seen. Of course, not all of them are going to be biological mothers, and that makes perfect sense. You don't have to be biologically related to be a mom. There are mother figures, adoptive moms, you know, all kinds of moms out there, So, and we want to celebrate them all. The, at least the ones that have showed up in anime. And so today, I believe it is you, Agnes, who is starting us off since it was Isabel last week. So Agnes, who, which anime moms would you like to give a shout out to for Mother's Day? For sure, yeah. Um, this was kind of slightly tricky to cover because I was trying to filter through all the anime moms that exist in the universe. And a majority of them are dead. Yeah, single yeah moms. unfortunately. So I was thinking to myself, okay, well, I kind of want to make it a little bit more lively, make it a little bit less depressing, and wanted to choose moms from either slice of life that have like happy relationships or there's not too much trauma-inducing backgrounds for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they're not dead, simply, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the first one that I want to highlight is from uh, Akebi-san's sailor uniform is her mother, Yua Akebi. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons why I want to highlight her is that she gives off that image of, like, the perfect working woman, yet is so wholesome and domestic at home with her kids and her husband. And that really reminded me a lot of my own family relationship with my mom, who, although is a very amazing working woman, um, she was practically the breadwinner of our family at one point. She was also very domestic. <laughs> and the way that uh, Yua Akebi actually creates and tailors Akebi's uniform reminds me a lot about how my mom used to sew us a lot of things when we were when I was a kid. So she would sew um, PJ, she would sew Halloween costumes for practically everybody else in the family, like my cousins and some of my aunties who wanted to dress up. And she also sewed me a very thick scarf that has a very faded pattern now, but I still wear it pretty frequently too. Um, so that really reminded me of um, of my mother when I was watching Akebi's uniform. And I was like, that's a really cool mom. I aspire that too. And she also has a really positive and confident attitude with Akebi and helps her kind of go through the trials of what it is to be a middle schooler and dealing with who am I in middle school, you know? And that sort of confidence, I feel like, is not seen a lot in anime just because that usual type of confidence is reserved for the male characters with their father figure and or it's discovered through, like, the power of friendship. But Akebi's mom gives Akebi a lot of encouragement and being like, don't feel bad for yourself, but, like, be who you are, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wanted to spotlight her for this time around. <laughs> I have a quick question. Did your mom yeah. uh, sew the scarf from scratch? <laughs> Yes, she did. And she is it a sew or a knit? Because I've learned sewed. that those... Oh my gosh, that's hard. She sewed. She actually has a sewing machine that's been passed down in the family. Um, like she bought it herself at Michael's and then she passed it on to somebody else who now takes up the helm of sewing and crafting stuff for her kids. 
Okay, that is really cool because I was thinking to myself, I've seen a lot of knit scarves, but and I've learned, of course, knit and sewing, they can't be synonymous with each other. So I was really curious, like, did you mean literally sew or did you mean knit? So sewing, wow. <laughs> yeah, she. I have very fond memories of my mom. Actually, when she would pick me up from school, we would go to like Joanne's to go pick up fabric or something. Oh. So I remember going up to the counter and watching her order like a bolt of fabric and understanding what exactly is the measurement of a bolt of fabric. Wow, that oh. is so cool. She, her Halloween costumes persisted for so long that every Halloween, occasionally the aunties will continue to share around the belly dancer costume that she made for them. You know, if she just picked it out from a pattern uh, book, right? You have, um, I don't remember what the what the companies are called, the ones that sell all the patterns for making those costumes, but the belly dancer one was such a big hit that it's still circulated around the aunties today. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, we have pictures of it too. And oh, also no pictures of me and my cousins dressing up in, you know, the stereotypical Halloween costumes, although some of them are now cultural appropriation. Oh. Uh, you know, like the Indian princess type of uh, uh, costume, yeah. <laughs> the witch, and a couple others too. But at the time, you know, everyone was thought it was innocent fun, so they were actually pretty good quality kind of stuff. Wait, she made those too? Yeah, she made them all from scratch. Oh my god. I have the patterns actually, I think somewhere in the house, and she still has her sewing kit box that she had to consolidate during our move, so it's still somewhere here. Wow. All right. So yeah, seeing seeing how Kevi's mom like has like that whole workshop where she has all the pins and needles, she has the mannequin. I'm like, yeah, this reminds me of what my mom used to do, except she didn't have a mannequin because we lived in an apartment when I was younger. And so she didn't have the means to put one there and create a workshop. I bet she would have liked one, though, from the sound of it. Oh, yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I think Akevi's mom has her own business. Yes, okay. I believe so, yeah. Because okay. she doesn't seem like the, the fully domestic Japanese housewife, but she actually does stuff and has a business on the side while her dad works and her kids go to school. Yeah, because I do remember her talking about like her clients or her work, and so, but it seems like... It seems like she operates mostly from home. So I, I was like, just based on that, I'm extrapolating that she sort of has her own business and she's probably making something is my guess and selling it. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if she was one of those like people who sell stuff off of Etsy or like, you know what, that's what I imagine. Yeah, <laughs> either that or she's like a freelancer for like writing or something, mm. uh, which is also very typical for people who are at home a freelancer for anything actually it doesn't have to be writing specifically but that's the most common one mm -hmm. especially in japan because there seems to be a larger influx of housewives who are becoming freelancers for like blog posts and just writing anything in general oh interesting i did not know that <laughs> yeah yeah i definitely see those two where even if you're a housewife, you can, you know, start making YouTube videos of what you cook at home. And that's, yeah! That's like oh my gosh, wait, do you, watch, do you watch Kimono Mama? I do, oh my god. Yes! yes! <laughs> so cute! Oh, it's wonderful. Gracie, you should watch it. It's really nice. Yeah, it's really awesome. I really just, like, have those videos and I keep watching them. Like, okay, this is something what I want to do in the home. Or just, like, have an insight into what other people cook and stuff like that. Or do Yeah, it's really mm -hmm. cool. But then, like, her whole story of how she got her career onto YouTube is super sad. Oh, what happened? So she so the woman used to the woman who runs the Kimono Mom channel, she used to work as a geisha in Kyoto. Okay. And she had actually been in a previous marriage before with an older man, but the older man had died, had passed away. And 
at his deathbed, she was usually like the very typical pristine like housewife that she was kind of not raised to be, but expected to be because she was working as a as a professional geisha entertainer in Kyoto. Uh-huh. And at one point, her husband on his deathbed had told her like she doesn't have to be, you know, the housewife that is expected, but that she should shoot beyond her means if oh. she wants to. And so eventually she got into the idea of making YouTube videos and then she was supported by her current husband who she remarried and had a child with. So her her channel has been like booming since I think like a year and a half ago when she was featured on um, uh, Pablo in Japan. And at that point her career just like shot off and she got, uh, I think she got one of those like YouTube play plaques recently. Okay, I don't remember yeah. which one though. Mm-hmm. But yeah, housewife, yeah, you know, especially, so that in itself is kind of considered like a freelancing job because she basically is at home making videos and whatnot. Yeah. And then there's another Japanese housewife at home who does blog posts that was also featured in Pablo from Japan. Um, she basically, while her kids are sleeping, she basically sits down and goes through her Instagram feeds and organizes her blog posts. Interesting. Well, I did, yeah, I did get the feeling that it was sort of like an Etsy store-esque sort of thing with Akavi's yeah. mom. Because she does seem very creative in the ways she, um, with not only her clothes, but you could you can kind of tell there's like crafts everywhere on her tables and stuff. So she's clearly making something. One other thing I really liked about Akavi's mom in the story is the way that she talks to her husband, which I know sounds very weird, but she kind of calls her husband out, you know, um, because her husband's not her husband, unfortunately, isn't home a lot. And that's that became really clear that it was because of work, which is, of course, the Japanese sort of workaholics lifestyle that a lot of unfortunately, employees don't really have a say in even if they don't like it. But you can tell he's really engaged in the family and he wants to be there because he's constantly texting his kids and his wife. But when he had come back after a long time. So from my guess is he was probably um, he was probably shipped out by the company to another city because they kind of live out in the countryside. He um, he was a little unsure of like how to talk to his now teenager daughter because he feels like things are probably going to be a little different. So when he first chickened out, he pretended to be asleep with like his younger daughter on his chest. And the mom called him out on it. The mom was like, you should have pretended to be asleep. You should have just like spoken to her because she was so excited to see you. <laughs> and and he, admit, he admits to her. He was like, I, like, I'm not quite sure what to say to her because it's different now. She's a teenager now and I feel like it's different. And she's just like, just say what you want to say and she will respond and stuff. And I really like that sort of small conversation she had with her husband. And it really shows like she is in a very balanced relationship with her husband. And of course, it's very loving as well. So yeah. Agreed. It's very different from the typical Nadeshko housewife trope of a mom, where it's like the mom intuitively understands what the husband's going <laughs> through and just nods her head respectfully as her husband yeah. like gazes um, off in the middle of nowhere, contemplating about life's decisions. Contemplating about now, life. Normally, <laughs> normally a, a good married couple or... A married couple that has respectful boundaries will talk about it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, okay, so that's your first pick. Uh, what do you have for your second pick, then? My second pick is interestingly related to the topic of how Akebi's father is a workaholic and works in Japanese standard um, working hours and rigor is Kobayashi from Kobayashi's Dragon Maid. Mm. 
And I want to say Kobayashi is an exemplary mom in the sense that she takes up a lot of the pseudo parental position. Oh, she absolutely which, does. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, she in the, in the typical nuclear Japanese family, right? Not so much in a Western family, but very nuclear Japanese family where she is the breadwinner of the family for one. She works as a programmer, which has horrendous deadlines um, and also in a company that's like fairly toxic to her as well, especially as you saw with her manager in several of the episodes in Kobayashi's uh, Dragon Maid. But at the same time, she still makes a point to hang out with her quote-unquote kids like Kana and Ilu, um, adjust her schedule and even living space to accommodate for her new growing family. That's right, they and moved then, for them. Yeah. They actually moved by like episode three. Like Kobayashi was literally standing there just thinking to herself, this apartment is really too small for three people. Okay, we're going to have to move out. And they found an even nicer apartment to live at instead of the same little little hovel that Kobayashi's been living there for like, I don't know, the past like five plus years as a programmer in a company. Mm-hmm. So it was really nice to see kind of like that representation of a, a truly working female that is uh, that is also trying to balance out a typical parental lifestyle with quote-unquote two kids and a very quote-unquote doting loving wife (laughs) yes exactly i was gonna say uh one i'm glad you brought up kobayashi because one thing i keep saying the seeing in the community is like oh uh toru is the mom and kobayashi is the dad and i'm like no 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 no, that's not you know while toru does seem to take more of the you know domestic home wife sort of situation you know, Kobayashi is very much a woman and, you know, uh, and identifies as a woman. So she is also a mom in regards to raising Kana and stuff like that. So I'm really glad that you chose her. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think Kobayashi also has a really good head on her shoulders so that she can kind of like steer her family in doing normal activities, not dragon activities. <laughs> so she's kind of the straight man in this uh, this comedic family quartet now. Mm-hmm. I, and I also like one thing is she's still so, yeah, she's so parently because there was one episode in season two that was very, very funny, by the way. But essentially, it's clear that Kobayashi probably lectured Kana and Kana wasn't very happy as kids do when they get lectured. Oh, this one. Yeah. And okay, so well, she, she gets lost. Yeah. So she, she runs away to the U.S. of all places. But, you know. Kana being a dragon, you know that nothing is really going to happen to her. Like, she's so powerful, despite being so young. Uh, but even with that fact, and, you know, and Toru even following after Kana just to make sure that everything was going to be okay, even though, once again, like, no human stands a chance against Kana, like, uh, Kobayashi stayed up all night waiting for her to come home and being worried about that fact because... Honestly, when you're a parent or I mean, I'm not saying this from personal experience, but I do have friends who are parents, you know, when you make your kids cry or you make your kids upset because you lecture them and they don't really feel the same way and they like shout things at you and stuff like that because they're angry. um, My friend was like, you genuinely feel bad. And especially if it happens at night, like you have trouble sleeping because you just keep thinking about, oh man, like I, I made my kid upset and that wasn't what I wanted to do. I was trying to teach her this or like tell them this. And so I thought like, I like that one little moment, I was just like, ah, like, you know, she's a parent through and through. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's really sweet. And it's, it's so heartbreaking through that episode too, to see 
Kobayashi is like constantly worrying about Kana. Well, Kana is just, you know, halfway across the globe, hanging out with a new friend. They almost got accosted by thugs. No big deal. No you big know? deal. Yeah, she she flicked the th- <laughs> she flicked the thug with a finger, and the thug was down. So yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what about you, uh, Isabel? Like, do you have any favorite moments of Kobayashi being a mom? <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it, so that's why I'm just really just hearing it between you two. So. Um, so I can't say much about Kobayashi, but it sounds like she's a really great mom and, you know, she really worries about Kana and everything else that happens in the household. So I'm glad to hear that. Um, and she's the main character too, right? Technically. Yeah, she's the main character. She literally, it's supposed, you know, I mean, Kobayashi's Dragon Maid is supposed to have that set up plot of, you know, an unsuspecting woman who got drunk one day and suddenly is landed the maid of her dreams. Not really. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) In the form of uh, Toru, right? And it's supposed to be like this rom-com set up with a a heavy slice of itchy thrown into it. You know, the typical Mm -hmm. kind of elements you see in a manga. But there's some fairly wholesome moments that you're like, wait, this is kind of a family manga. Hold up a sec. Yeah, it's a family story, yeah. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Well, not the manga, as we have discussed before in our adaptation. A wholesome family anime adaptation. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> All right. So thank you for sharing your two picks, Agnes, for your the anime moms you would like to feature. I believe sure. the roulette now rolls on to me, since this is how we always go in a circle. So I'm going to go ahead and go. I actually uh, was also like you, Agnes. I was trying to find anime moms that were very active to either the protagonist or, you know, is a protagonist in uh, in Kobayashi's case. And it was a lot more difficult than I expected because I realized that while there are more anime moms than anime dads portrayed when I count them, most of the anime moms aren't really distinct. Versus a lot of the anime dads are actually very distinct. So that will be interesting when we do do an anime dads episode for unsurprisingly Father's Day. But with that observation I made over, uh, my first pick is actually from a fairly recent anime. But I just, I, I adore her. I think she's the best character in that show. And it is Healing, Queen Healing from Ranking of the Kings. Yeah. Healing! Best girl. Yes, absolutely best girl. So first of all, I owe Queen Healing a um, an apology. So I apologize now formally to uh, Queen Healing because I thought that she was going to be one of those evil stepmothers who, you know, are there just to stand in the protagonist way and have all these prejudices and stuff like that. Obviously, I'm very wrong because I picked to highlight her <laughs> for this week's episode. But I think part of, not only is Healing very involved with the plot itself, another reason why I really like Healing is that Healing is a stepmom. And we don't really see stepmoms portrayed in anime. I, I actually can't think of any step parents portrayed in anime now that I'm thinking about it. But she's a stepmom, and so she married second into the family. But... She's a very flawed character, you know. A lot of the beginning stuff we see of her is that she is quite mean towards, uh, towards, uh, gosh, what was his name? Bochi. Yeah, Bochi. Yeah. Bochi, yeah. So she, she was quite mean towards Bochi. But then we realize rather than her trying to be mean, she was actually doing it out of a sense of protectiveness and coddling. 
And that is a mistake that parents make. Parents sometimes, when they think they're doing something in their kid's best interest, they sort of ignore how their kids are feeling. And in Healing's case, is that she really underestimates what Boshi is capable of uh, because she thinks to herself, you know, this is a child who is not physically growing up, so is physically stunted. And on top of that is deaf and has literally like everyone outside laughing at him whenever he walks out. So in a way, it makes sense on why she keeps trying to dissuade him on the idea of ever going outside, ever going anywhere and just staying in his place nice and safe in the palace where she can watch over him. But obviously, that's not what you should do with, you know, kids with special needs. You, of course, you need to see them for who they are and while they do have disabilities, you also have to see what their capabilities are and, of course, you know, um, pay attention to their feelings. And it took a while before she realized that she was hurting him, and which was the last thing she wanted to do. That You know, she, she did not want to hurt him. She wanted him to be happy. She wanted to protect him. Uh, and so she quickly recognized that, and she also changed her mind on a lot of things. She would quite literally kill and die for Bochi. Like, we, we see that. She literally, she heard, like, news, this is somewhat spoilers, but she heard news that he was, quote-unquote, dead, and she was like, execute the man, like, execute the man immediately. <laughs> and so, like, if that's not a mom, I don't, I don't know what is, you know. Um, the second thing was, uh, even though Dida, you know, Dida has his issues, but oh my gosh, when she was screeching to save him, like literally like pounding down on his body and like, you know, like just fighting like a rabid animal like that right there shows just how much she loves and adores her children, regardless of whether she gave birth to, birth to them or not, because Boji was not originally hers and Dida is. But at the end of the day, she treats them as her children in her eyes. Those are her kids. And she would do anything for them to protect them, to fight for them. And ultimately also let them go because that's what she had to do with Bolshi is realize she needed to let him go. So I thought Healing was just such a great character, you know, in Rain Camp Kings and an absolutely great mother to mention, albeit flawed, of course, but still a good and loving mother for Mother's Day episode. So, yeah, that's my thoughts. I know both of you two know her, so I want to hear your thoughts now. <laughs> Queen Healing Redemption arc. <laughs> That's all I have to say. <laughs> She's great. She's wonderful. I love the fact that Queen Healing is also kind of like a twist on the healing archetype role as well. <gasps> yeah. Because usually in fantasy, West, in Japanese adaptations of Western fairy tales or kind of like taking their spin on Western fairy tales, the quote-unquote healing position is usually a woman who is you know dainty fair i will save you i hope i'm doing the right job you know kind of thing mm, right yeah. that's kind of annoying after a while healing is a queen who heals on her own which is great and then you can also see that over time after she gave birth to dida and as she grows older it actually becomes much harder for her to continue to heal people without the use of a potion or you know Oh, mana, I didn't know? even think about that. Because <laughs> I remember like watching and every single time she knows that it's a disability of hers because she's growing older. And as a result, she actually uses her healing very sparingly. But she's so aggressive in her healing that when she does it at her full capacity, you know, the flowers underneath the body start to sprout and grow. And I was <laughs> like, that's so, that's so 
untypical of like a healer role because the healer roles just be like heal enough so you know the person's back on their feet no she will full out aggressively heal you I, until she hulks out blooms. like she hulks out <laughs> i know she holds out like wow what a queen i would die for her too <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just had the same thoughts like i didn't even think that you know i thought it was maybe like eating away her, her life force or something um but yeah that makes more sense that she's just growing older and she's not able to heal as much as she was before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause especially when you see how like the swap of power when Daida slash um King Boss acquires healing's power. Ooh, that's Dida, a bad dad, her... by the way. <laughs> that's a bad dad, by the way, yeah. Because uh Dida's Jeanette is is her biological son, so he genetically inherits her healing factor power thing. Dida slash King Boss is also able to heal at the same capacity, but start to also make flowers grow, which is an, uh, which shows like how Dida as an individual, because he's so young, but also has the healing factor, can pour like all of his energy into healing, have a lot of things sprout, but not be affected by his age as a factor. So I thought that was like really interesting. I, I remember now, like in the flashbacks where that this is like episode where we really learned that, you know, healing is not an evil stepmother was uh, with the cute snake, you know, when it was wounded. And she at first she thought, you know, Boji was scared of the snake. So she kicked it. But then it turned out Boji was worried for it. She healed that snake. And one could argue, well, it's a snake, so it's smaller. But it did look very effortless then when she was much younger. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah. OK. So that's my first pick. Uh, my second pick for uh, best mom is Toko Fujiwara from Natsume's Book of Friends. I know I've mentioned that anime several times now, but I also know you two haven't seen it. So uh, have I told you guys this story already or am I just like rehashing things again? I don't think we've talked <laughs> about the mom, have we? No, I don't remember talking about the mom because I just remember from Natsume's Book of Friends, it's the grandma that kind of like kickstarts the whole series, but I never really knew much about the mom. Okay, so uh, what I am going to say is uh, his adoptive mother is the, is... Okay, that makes more sense. Got it. But but you guys, do you guys know about her too or... (laughs) No, 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 I don't. So go ahead. Okay, okay. Okay, so I'm going to give the long explanation in that case. So uh, Natsume's Book of Friends. Natsume can see see Ayakashi, as you guys knew. So one thing was his mom died at a very young age, and it was just him and his dad. But then after his dad died, Natsume was getting pushed around to family relative after relative, and he wasn't really staying in any family because no family really wants him. And also because when he was young, he doesn't realize that he can see things that people, other people can't. And so he keeps freaking out and he's like a problem child to a lot of families who, you know, they're not interested in a problem child, which unfortunately is a thing that happens and very tragically. So, uh, but where Toko comes in, who is his adoptive mom, is that her husband, so the other Fujiwara, her, her husband attended a funeral of a friend that he used to work with. And, at the funeral of the friend, um, one of the friend's relatives at that time was housing Natsume, but he was causing a lot of problems. And essentially, when and the Fujiwaras had at that point decided that they weren't just ever going to have kids, it began because like when they married, they thought they were going to have kids and they were going to raise a family. But then both of them were so busy and I believe Toko no longer works, but at the beginning she did. So both of them were working that 
They didn't really have time to think about kids. And by the time she was tired of working, she would rather just be a homemaker. Um, she had already reached an age where it wouldn't be really safe to, you know, uh, have kids anymore. So then they were like, okay, we'll just live the rest of our lives together as an old married couple. And we just won't think about kids. But when after her husband was at the funeral and he keeps hearing about this tr uh, problem child that's getting pushed around, he finds Natsume. And by then, Natsume is already like a middle schooler, so definitely not a kid anymore, a teenager. He saw this kid. He's like, okay, yeah, this kid is a little withdrawn and, you know, emotionally close, but I don't really see how he's, you know, a problem child. And it really sort of like put a seed of thought in his mind where he was like, we could take kid you know like if he really is that much of a problem child like we could take it and so he goes home and uh and he like just without saying a word started to clean up the upstairs room which kind of has just been used as a storage room but the upstairs room was technically supposed to be a room for a kid and uh, and his wife Toko was like oh what's going on like you come back from a funeral you start doing all these things and her husband just goes I was thinking, you know, about this kid, and, and I, she was, he was like, would you be interested if maybe we adopt him? And she just starts crying because at the end of the day, she did really want to have a family, like, and raise a child. And she told herself that it was fine and that time has passed and stuff like that. But hearing that, you know, they could potentially adopt a child and have a family, she starts crying. That was all she ever wanted. And he and Natsume took a very, very, very long time to open up for good reasons, understandably, because he's been pushed around to so many homes. His life has been so unstable. There are yokai going after him all the time and no one to help him on that matter. And, you know, he was actually getting physically abused in some of the homes as well. But she was extremely patient and like, you know, figuring out what he likes to eat, what he likes to drink and making sure he's comfortable and stuff like that. She never got impatient with him. And eventually Natsume started to open up a little by little and started to feel like he's part of the family rather than just doing room and board without having to pay for it. But the but the ultimate chapter for me about Toko is, and this is, by the way, when it was through her whole point of view, like one of the chapters in the manga, but uh, the anime thankfully animated it. And I thank the anime for doing that because it started off as a side chapter. But the ultimate chapter for me was she was outside hanging up her laundry and she notices that there was a black crow that, you know, sits at that tree all the time and kind of watches her do laundry. And she remembers to herself, oh, I think crows, you know, they when they have a family, you know, a murder of crows, they, they tend to stick together. They never break apart and there's this like bond. And so since there's only one, which is really rare, she was like, oh, he must have, you know, that crow must have lost that family. And so she always talks to the crow. She's like, she's like, you can just watch me do laundry. Like, I understand if you don't want to find a new family and stuff like that. And Natsume came home one day and saw her doing laundry. So he goes and helps. And he notices the crow. And she was just like, oh, yeah, he's always there. He's always accompanying me. And Natsume goes, no, 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 no. Like, you know, I'm talking about the white crow. But there isn't a white crow. So the uh, crow, clearly the family of the crow was still there with it and like didn't leave and Natsume could see it, but she couldn't. And she knew in that instant that he could see something that no one else could. But 
as a good mother and like guardian, she doesn't ask him anything. She doesn't push him anything because she knows that this is likely a secret that he's been holding really close to his chest and that it was accidental that it even slipped out because he thought that it was an albino crow that she could see. And so instead, she just goes, oh, and when the crows start flying, she just goes, oh, where's the crow? Like, where's the white crow? I must have just missed it. And he was like, oh, it's right there. It's flying beside. And he's like trying to show her and stuff. And her narration ends where she was like, um, the way she narrated the ending was just, I know that, you know, there are things happening with Natsume, that there are things happening with that boy. But until the day that he trusts us even more and, you know, tells it to us himself, like, I will continue to guard him and watch over him and make sure that he knows he's supported so that he doesn't say it in fear, but he says it in confidence to me. And I adored that. I thought that was so powerful, not only because of the fact that what Toko went through with Natsume is actually very realistic to adoptive parents who adopt teenagers from the foster care system. Teenagers... Adopting teenagers is really, really hard. There's a lot of real-life stories about them because they've gone through a lot of abuse and they've had their trust broken a lot. They have a lot of abandonment issues. It takes a long time for them to open up. And even when they do, there's there's a side to them that's always scared that their adoptive parents might change their mind. And so uh, Toko's narration shows exactly sort of the patience you have to have with these kids but she does it so unrelentingly and it's just so beautiful, I think. And so that's why I wanted to focus on her specifically for, for this Mother's Day episode. You guys have any questions or comments? Cause I know I just narrated a whole thing to you guys. So I know you just like told us her whole story. I'm, I'm so interested in what, what it actually looks like or, you know, how much Toka actually has an influence on Natsume. Um, does she, you know, does she still appear in later episodes as well? Or is it just kind of like that initial point for, you know, Natsume to feel like he finally has a family and people that understand him? So she does. She shows up a lot and that he, she and her husband are both like a big plot point for Natsume because an easy way to get Natsume angry is if like the spirits try to threaten them and Natsume is like, no effing way <laughs> am I letting you touch them sort of thing. <laughs> That's very sweet. Yeah, it is. Well, not sweet, not sweet in the sense that the yokai prey on his family, but very sweet that he's very protective of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, he absolutely adores them and stuff. Uh, one thing, one moment that was like really big was Natsume. I think Natsume stayed out too late. He stayed out too late because of yokai stuff, and when he came home. Toko was not happy with him, as moms usually are when you are staying out too late and you don't tell them. And she gave him, like, a very thorough lecture about how he cannot just do this. Like, if he's going to stay out, he needs to tell her so she's aware, so she's not left reeling thinking about where the heck is he and so um, and whether something has happened. And that was also, like, because it's interesting. So the reason why Natsume's Book of Friends is so good is that it starts off when... Natsume has just started to feel safe around them, but he hasn't really felt integrated to them is the best way I can put it. Like he's thankful towards them and he knows they're great people, but he doesn't see them as like with him throughout the series. You literally see how he grows closer and closer and closer to the parents and the parents also feel the same way. So in the case where Toko lectures him, 
that was from his point of view. That was not through hers. But he found himself surprised first because he, she lectured him. But then he also found himself, you know, surprised because he didn't jump. Because he's so used to, like, abuse from his other families of getting passed around that usually when someone raises their voice at him, he jumps. But instead, he was just like, it, but instead, he just felt guilty, which show which was like a big surprise for him because he realized he's really started to move past from his like traumatizing life and then the third thing was he was surprisingly happy that she lectured him because that was the first time that she ever got angry at him and you know that was the first time she ever was like you need to do better we can't do this we have ground house rules you know sort of thing and it actually funnily enough that lecture brought him closer to her instead and so that was like another moment through his pov but yeah she and her husband shows up quite a bit of times actually um they're obviously still not aware or i mean she kind of is aware of the eye of the yokai now but you know she's once again from her pov is waiting for him to tell her um but you know, they're not directly involved with the law of the plot, but like they are very there and present in his life and have a very direct effect on the character as the character grows. So, yeah. Uh, alrighty then. So, I guess, do you have any questions, Agnes? <laughs> nope. You did a very thorough explanation. <laughs> Yay. Well, I mean, that is what I'm good at. So, in that. Very true. In that case, Isabel, it is now your turn. So, I am handing the baton to you now. Um, you know, which anime moms would you like to feature for our Mother's Day anime moms, you know, episode? Yeah, the first one I want to highlight is, you know, if for Mother's Day or just motherhood in general, I think uh, the recent, or relatively recent, I guess, uh, movie would be, is it Makia? When the Promised Flower Blooms? Yes! Yeah. Okay. I was wondering yes, if one of me. us were going to mention her, but okay. <laughs> Yeah, I thought. I mean, she has she has tragedy, so that's why I didn't want to mention. Yeah, that's true. But okay, continue. <laughs> it's definitely tragic, but I I think the whole movie in general does do a good job at you know presenting what motherhood is really like, and what um, especially a single mother or not even I mean it's not even her child honestly, um, Ariel, but the fact that she takes this kid in and she herself is a kid she's like 15 she's her, her mind i feel like even though her race as a person um in this movie um she you know she's basically immortal but her in terms of her age it's she's like almost like a 14 year old 15 year old really so she's just so young and she takes on this child and she does not know what she's got herself into and I don't know. I just didn't expect there's, there's something different I expected in the movie overall because I thought it was going to be about, you know, the world and moving on from like feudalistic times into more kind of modern times or at least industrial times or something like that. But in essence, that the whole thing that the thing that pulls the whole movie together is actually between this relationship between uh, Maki and her child, um, Ariel. And they together, you know, she brings up this child, doesn't know anything. She, like, learns about life in general as well um, in interacting with mortals, which she was told not to do as a child. And then also, um, she's also very good at, I don't know what's that called. It's like Lou. They call it the Hebo or something. Hebeel? Um, Hebeel. Hebeel, yeah. yeah. The, basically, I, to, in my mind, it's like a loom where they kind of, like, weave things and weave I think it is it. based on a loom, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah so that and then like you know she she continues to do that it's something that you know brings her peace but also is bittersweet to her because she you know remembers her um, family and everything or you know her people that um were that were taken away or rather kind of destroyed by all the war that's happening around them and but then that's that kind of represents you know her relationship and how she's you know how she's grown as a person as she continues to keep on adding to that and then adds you know Ariel's story in there and you know it's very cute when you know he's like a little kid and then he grows up like you're saying Gracie you know teenage phase she has to learn through that um you know through um things that he would do uh towards her so overall is there's a lot of scenes in that movie where this is what mother being a mother is like and to me, you know, obviously, I thought it was a great uh, representation of what it was like and the struggles that one has to go through, especially without a father figure, and not only that, maybe grandparents as well. So it was definitely really hard on her. Um, but yeah, that's the one I would like to highlight. Uh, I I feel like you guys both watched the movie as well, right? And I, Gracie, actually, I think you were the one who like talked about it so much that I was like, okay. I have to go see it now, and I'm so glad I did. Really? Oh, it was me. Oh, I'm because of y'all. I'm so proud I of myself. I bought the box set. It's sitting in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so proud of myself that I I was the one who got you to watch <laughs> Isabel. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you were talking about chat, and I was like, I have to go see this movie because Gracie keeps talking about it, and it was definitely different Same. from what I expected. Yeah. So. Same. I ugly cried oh. and I brought tissue. I did. I don't know if I told you this story. Um, when I went to go see it for the first time in theaters, after Gracie told me about it, I had gone with a bunch of friends and I told them my friend at Anime Expo, when she went to go see it, cried while seeing this movie. So bring tissues with you. And everybody in the theater was sobbing. Aww. Guys, girls alike. They were like either quietly in the corner trying to hide their sniffles <laughs> or outright holding their breath until the very last scene. And then when the credits rolled, you could hear the theater. Everybody let out a very shaky like... <sighs> like they were trying to repress their crying and I was like passing out tissues to people because I was like yeah I know this is really heartbreaking you're such a saint to like pass out tissues to other people <laughs> I felt bad because I would feel horrible sitting there like you know kind of like sobbing it would like snot down my nose but like looking like an ultimate mess and not wanting to walk out in the theaters looking like I just cried like a river where the book is <laughs> Amaki is one of those movies where you know there are flaws to it, like, without question, but oh, you don't yeah. care what the flaws are because it did such a good job of trying to portray its theme, which is very much rooted in motherhood as a whole because motherhood really does show up just always nonstop throughout the entire movie. Like, from the very beginning when um, she had her mentor, who was basically her mother figure, talk through her feelings of heartbreak because she realized the Creel, who she has a crush on, um, doesn't like her. And then later when she accidentally escapes from the horrible situation they were in and discovering the dead mom who died and gripped and protected her son's body or her son so tightly that yeah. she had to break off the mom's fingers to even get a chance of like saving this child. And then 
getting help from a single mother raising two rambunctious boys whose husband died and having to get tips from her. And then it's just motherhood is everywhere. It literally ends on a childbirth scene, which, by the way, that childbirth scene was genuinely beautiful. At least that was my opinion. I thought that childbirth scene was beautiful. And so it's just motherhood is just throughout the entire movie. And so like that's all Machia is about. I think uh, one thing that I did really like about Machia in regards to motherhood is, yes, it is tragic, unfortunately. And one thing that it does show is that motherhood is hard and it can really emotionally affect mothers and their stability because we also have Machia's friend who... Yes, she is not in a good place at all whatsoever. So it makes complete sense that her like mental stability isn't at its best. But at the very end where she does reunite with her daughter who very much have wanted to see her, have wanted to be have that mother and daughter relationship, she introduces herself but she ultimately chooses not to go with her daughter and she ultimately chooses freedom for herself. Because whether we like it or not, you know, raising a child, it's oh, it's a lot of commitment. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. Heck, I'm in my 20s and my mom is still my mom. <laughs> like, if I, like if I'm having trouble, I pick up my phone. I dial my mom's number. And I'm just like, mom. <laughs> so, like, like, you're never. The shrillness of your voice. And you're like, mom. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Like, you're never. In my honest opinion, you never really stop being a mom once you become one. And like the the extent of it is, yes, your children grow up and they become independent and they're able to handle things mostly on their own. But yeah, see, like the second I need like really help, like serious help and like be serious comfort, I'm dialing her number instead to like help me. And so and, and I still put her as like the guardian to, you know, the guardian to a contact or something happens to me because of like a workplace stuff or something like that so it really shows you like how much of a commitment and how much energy it requires to be a parent and you know some people aren't meant to do that and that's perfectly fine obviously in Makia's friend's case she did not have that child of her own volition as we were very aware of I I remember distinctly when I watched that anime expo when she revealed she was pregnant everyone gasped because they knew what the ind- indication was, like what it, what it implicated. And so she, you know, ultimately when she meets her daughter, leaves her daughter behind because that's not the life for her. That's not what she wanted. That wasn't, that time and energy wasn't meant for her. And it's, it can be a struggle. I mean, look at how much Makia struggled raising Ariel. And so mm-hmm. of even though ultimately Makia was an amazing mom, of course, and totally, like, and totally really embraced that role and wanted it, of course, because she was the one who took the baby from, like, the corpse. And so, but, yeah, like, Makia does such a good job of sort of, like, expanding, like, its view of exactly what motherhood is and all the bads and the goods that encompasses it. And I think, I think overall it's just a good, like, movie to be called like a mother's day or maybe not a mother's day movie because it is quite sad but like just a motherhood sort of movie so yeah uh that's my little take i i know uh i know you've talked about machia before uh agnes so i guess like did you have anything you want to add as well <laughs> Nah, you you summed it up perfectly i was going to make the comment about the the friend that was forced to become the the i guess surrogate wife 
to bear a child for the kingdom, but you already swept it away. And I was like, great, I don't have to talk about it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry, I should have just kept my mouth shut. No, 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 that, no, that's what I'm saying is that it's great that I didn't have to intervene and also bring up that point. You already did it for me. So less, less need for me to actually talk about it. <laughs> Agnes, yes, I get to talk less. <laughs> yes, I can become an introvert on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Isabel, that's your first pick. What you got for our second pick? Okay, for my second pick, um, I chose. I just want to talk about the mom in Gintama, uh, whose Kagura's mom is Koka. Unfortunately, she's one of those characters that has passed away uh, since the start of Gintama, so no surprise there. Um, yeah, I don't know why I just choose like immortal moms as my choices. Maybe I want Mother's Day to or like moms to be immortal. Yeah, you I want your mom to be more. <laughs> Do you still call her when you get really, really upset? <laughs> yeah, I do at some point. And then, yeah, I spent a lot of time. With, I spent a lot of time with my mom today. And it's not even Mother's Day yet. It's like tomorrow <laughs> on Sunday. So, <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, Kolka is an interesting character because uh, she is super chill. And the beginning, I personally really like her love story and Kagura's father's love story. Kagura's fa- father is Umi Bozu. Um, and, you know, she ultimately made a sacrifice to live with him and have children, uh, which are Kagura and her older brother, Kamui. And, you know, she, she lives on a planet all by herself, really. So she was totally fine being alone, just kicking ass on her planet. She's living with like um, evolved creatures on this planet all by herself because her planet was destroyed um, with all uh, with all the wars that went on, intergalactic wars, uh, because we're talking about planets here. And, you know, Umibozu just comes to the planet thinking, you know, he he lost a bet. So he's like, okay, I'm going to go try to woo a woman on this planet, even though there's actually no one on this planet. But surprisingly, he meets this woman who actually kicks his ass. So, <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> As Spike Spiegel says, I love a woman who can kick my ass. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it, it, their courtship is uh, very, very sweet. Um Ultimately, you know, she says that, you know, she has only known her life on this planet and her clan is the one that lives and dies with the planet and she's the last one. Um, But he somehow convinces her to leave and, you know, she and so, you know, they have Kamui and Kagura. uh, But by the time, you know, Kagura is born, uh, Kolka actually, uh, you know, becomes ill. And so she's bedridden for most of what uh, Kagura knows for her life so but then you know she they really love her and i think kolka really embodies the fact that you know she is someone who ties the family together you know when she was alive and well uh she would you know carry kamui on her back and do normal you know housewife things but also you know whenever umibozo drove her mad she would throw knives and plates at him and he would have to run away so just kind of like that sweet life but then also kind of that tragedy but then also her sacrifice for um him and also the kids as well because Kamui grows up and he thinks that you know she you know we should bring mom back to the planet so she can um, not be ill anymore 
But ultimately, if she does go back to that planet, you know, she, she would have to watch her kids die in that case. So, you know, in the fact that she she chose to kind of leave her planet, leave um, and sacrifice herself, really. Uh, but she ultimately wanted to have a family and uh, not experience that loneliness. So I thought that was really bittersweet, uh, the fact that she wanted to be surrounded by her family uh, when she died. And, you know, this ultimately led to Kagura learning from her mom and also having this dream because she always had this dream of going to Earth. She had never been to Earth before. And so Kagura takes that and she becomes kind of like the person who who brings the family together, especially Kamui and her father, Umibozu. So she, you know, she goes to Earth, she finds her own family there, obviously with Gin and Shinpachi. So I feel that Koka's like influence on the family is so strong, um, even though, you know, she's long past. Um, so the fact that, you know, her, she is able to influence their decisions and what they go on in life shows, you know, how a mother can influence her children and not only that, but their choices, their choices and how they act towards others as well. But yeah, other than that, I really wish I, we could have seen more of Koka, but I really, really like that story arc in Gintama. It's like one of the last arcs in the series uh, before it ends. I think it's the first, probably the first part of the last season, like season four, um, is when we learn about this story. And the storytelling is so great, especially you know from the start uh, to the end. So I really like that story about Koka. I think it's interesting because it kind of almost sounds like a reverse Kaguya story, you know, with the Moon Princess story. Because the Moon Princess story was ultimately she found what she wanted her family to be, but then she left to go to the moon instead. And in her case, she uh, decided to stay. So at least that's that was my thought was, oh, it's kind of like a reverse of the Japanese mythology. <laughs> Oh, it does. Yeah, I I actually had not heard of that mythology, but then I think I watched an animated film that was about that, where the child actually goes to the moon, and she's there. Oh, oh, is it is, is it, it that is Netflix it. film? <laughs> yeah. What is? I, I no, no, no. That wow. was Chang'e. That was a Chinese mythology, actually. Oh, it's different. Yeah, it's oh, okay, different. Okay. Uh, Kaguya is. Well, I mean, they're kind of similar, though. I'm not gonna lie, which is. I think Kaguya just borrowed elements from the original Chinese yeah. mythology, if I have to be completely yes, honest. Yeah. Uh, but Kaguya basically was a moon child, and then she, there, she falls in love with a man who she like wants to start a family with and everything, but then ultimately she decided to leave the Earth to go back to the moon instead. And it's the whole separation story that, you know, Asian romances really really love and i think in this case like it's kind of flipped which is no no, no she's not going back she is actually going to stay instead so yeah <laughs> that's definitely what the story is about so yeah that's really all i have to say just wanted to highlight her um i really like her design she, i think she's really really pretty as well um much uh, actually prettier than kagura <laughs> mm, no i agree i definitely agree i mean kagura's 15 at the start like very young at the start of Gintama so she kind of has that childish look mm -hmm. to her you don't really see her as like a really nice character design but her mom is yes <laughs> <Chef's kissed. laughs> Agnes I can hear the thirst <laughs> yes <laughs> 
I may be straight, but I also simp for women. So. <laughs> uh, what do you think? Of, it sounds like you're kind of more familiar with it than me because I, I know nothing about Gintama, so I'm going to be honest. I watched like a good portion of Gintama when I was growing up, but at that point, I kind of stopped watching it because it was a lot of gag anime and I didn't feel like there was a real plot going on. But I had been somewhat keeping up at least from an outsider perspective when I was in college because I had a friend who was also a diehard Gintama fan and I would hear snippets of conversation from her about the the whole family of Kagura, her mother and her father and her brother, and also the intergalactical politics and warfare that would come onto Earth, uh, I think, in the last couple arcs of Gintama. So that's why I'm like kind of aware of the situation. I don't have much to comment about Koga, but her art design is very pretty. Yeah, if you ever get a chance to go back to it, definitely just maybe just skip the gag parts if they're not your thing. Yeah, I need to go straight. But the problem is, is that (laughs) now that I'm an adult, I find the gag parts even funnier. So I'm in that weird. It's kind of like watching One Piece, right? You're Mm -hmm. kind of stuck in that weird position of, God, I know the story is so good, but there's so much gag to get through. How long do I have to sit here until I get to the good part? You know. Yeah, I know. It's only like 300 episodes. Totally. No big deal. deal. Exactly. No big deal. <laughs> and then like One Piece is like 1014 or something right now. And I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Alrighty then. Well, I think that sums up our Mother's Day Anime Moms episode. I hope all of you guys enjoyed our discussion about the anime moms we wanted to highlight today. I hope everyone had a good Mother's Day with your mom. And finally, I hope you will be with us next time. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.